0: Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from TOLT. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Welcome, everybody. This is Dwayne Davidson with another episode of Tales from TOLT. And uh, today's episode is going to be a really interesting one because it's just a wonderful uh, resource that we have in the valley. It's the museum that's uh, located up in the Upper Valley. And we have an individual from uh, there to tell us all about it today. His name is Christy Lake. Welcome.
1: Hi, thank you for having me on your show, Dwayne.
0: Hey, can you, uh, well, we're glad to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do for the museum?
1: Yeah, so I am the assistant director at the Snoqualmie Valley Historical Museum. I have been there for 15 years. I am our only staff member, so I wear many hats there. Um, I greet visitors. I answer research inquiries. I help uh, catalog our artifacts. And I staff the museum from 9 to 5 on Mondays and Tuesdays.
0: And in her spare time, for the folks that may have missed it from our previous episode, in her spare time, she uh, is very key in the Northwest Rail Museum down at Snoqualmie's organization. And uh, so uh, you keep yourself very, very busy. Well, we all benefit from it. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Just to get started, let's talk a little bit about that museum. How long has that organization been around?
1: Uh, The organization itself has been around since about 1960 uh, but the collection actually dates to around uh, 1910. In 1910 a school teacher named Ada Hill moved to the area to start teaching at the North school in North Bend and she started collecting artifacts to help teach her students history. The collection grew some with her own uh, personal items she was collecting and then in 1939, for the 50th anniversary of statehood and the platting of the town of Snoqualmie and North Bend, there was a pageant uh, to talk about the history of the Snoqualmie Valley. And she got William Taylor, who was the founder of North Bend, to play himself in the school pageant. And he wore his hat and pistol and knife in the pageant that he had had when he moved to the area at the end of the pageant, he offered Ada Hill to keep the items for the museum that she had going in the classroom. And that really became part of the core of the collection. And the museum was in the schools in North Bend until the early 1960s, when the baby boom had increased the population of children in the upper Snoqualmie Valley, and there wasn't as much classroom space. By that time, Ada Hill had been Uh, teaching on and off for 50 years and was retiring. And so the school district asked her to remove the collection from the museum and the Historical Society was formed to take care of it. For many years, it was across the street from where the North Bend Library now is. And then in the late 1970s, when I-90 was built, uh, I-90 was originally supposed to go through downtown North Bend instead of being across the river like it now is. And so the state had condemned some properties uh, to purchase them for that freeway expansion before they redesigned where I-90 was supposed to go. And so a building opened up in North Bend that was much bigger than the one that we had been in the 1960s. And so we moved to the current location um, and we've been there ever since. The collection has grown, so currently we have about 10,000 artifacts that are three-dimensional artifacts, and then about another 10,000 library and archive materials, and then we have about 100,000 images.
0: Wow. I did not know she was like that key into the founding of that. Didn't she write a book, I know that name from a, a, a Shadows of the Moon or some type of a book that
1: Yeah, she did write a book. So she wrote uh, The History of Snoqualmie Valley, which is still one of our key books. And she started writing it probably in the 1930s based off of some locations she mentions in the books. Uh, But she published the first edition in the 1960s. And we're on, I think, the seventh or eighth edition now. Because she had a lot of the pioneer children in her classroom, was able to interview some of uh, the first European-American settlers here in the Straffalmi Valley that were still with us or their children. Um, And their voices really shine through in her work. And it's been a a valuable resource um, historically. And then uh, there's also In the Valley of the Moon that was written by a Fall City resident, Peggy Corliss, that was also published in the 1960s. Peggy covers slightly different uh, topics because she knew what Ada Hill had written. So she covers some of the areas that were not covered by Ada. And between the two, they really give us our best sources for the pioneer era Snoqualmie Valley.
0: Interesting. So let's talk a a little bit about the scope of uh, the museum. What geographical area does that uh, serve?
1: Typically, we've considered the Snoqualmie Valley Historical Museum covering from Snoqualmie Pass and the former town of Cedar Falls into North Bend, Snoqualmie, Preston, and Fall City, um, because that was really the Snoqualmie Valley 410 school district um, that Ada Hill had really founded her museum in. During the 60s and 70s, uh, the Tolt Historical Society and the Duval Historical Society had also formed and were really covering those areas. Of course, more recently, the Fall City Historical Society now exists, but it didn't at the time that we were really getting going.
0: And they don't actually have a museum. They do Correct. They do other things very well. They have an excellent website yes. and other things. They do very, very well, but they don't actually have artifacts in the museum, as I understand it. And one of the giant industries of that area, of course, is the Soqualmie Mill, Warehouser's Mill. Uh, that was a big operation. And it just really, to me, it just blows me away that I can remember as a boy driving out there and seeing this just colossal big you know mill and a pond and boats pushing logs around in a pond and smoke going up from stacks all over the place. and now you go out there and there's no practically no trace that there was ever even a mill there. I mean just a few buildings uh, it's it's gone. so if there was ever a call for a preservation of history it would be in that particular case because you could almost not even really tell that there was a mill there. Do you folks have much on the uh, the Weyerhaeuser mill?
1: We do have quite a bit on the warehouser mill. Um, so it's planning really started in 1914, really started operating in 1918, right as we were getting involved in World War I. Uh, we have several collections that directly relate to the Snowcalling Falls Lumber Company mill. We have Harold Keller's collection of photographs. And he was a uh, photographer who ended up being the YMCA director there at the Community Hall from 1945 until uh, I think 1967 or so. And so we have about 3,600 of his photographs from that era. We also have a collection of about 200 photographs of the mill being constructed. We also received the Uh, union records when uh, the union closed down. We also have a great history by a lady named Edna Huebner-Cruz, and she lived there from 1917 to 1923 as a teenager, and her dad was an assistant superintendent of the mill, but he passed away her senior year of high school. And so after she graduated they ended up having to move because it was a company town and so they no longer had a family member working at the mill. So in later in life she sat down and wrote out her memories of the mill and it really captures that early period of the mill and because she moved away she didn't have later memories clouding her memories of the town and that's also a great resource. And then we have of course lots of individual donations of different booklets on the mill and uh, individuals photographs um, and maps and that sort of thing we recently uh, received a collection of about 200 section maps uh, showing a bunch of the warehouser holdings that were related to the mill and i think most of those date from the 1930s um, but that's another great resource as well
0: you know, uh wasn't really prepared to talk about this, but I just want to interject this It's kind of a little fun fact. I was researching historical newspapers of Carnation. I think it was Carnation Enterprise or something like that. On an entirely different subject around the turn of the century, I was looking up a different topic, a different subject. And in the little, you know, the little news notes, uh, the little local briefs where they just they're almost like a gossip column and that they told who checked into the hotel and all those oh. type of things that the little the local papers had they uh, said and this is real early 1900s before the mill was built it was incarnation it mentioned that uh, i think it was frederick warehouser but i'm not sure frederick warehouser visited the total hotel and his purpose in town was he was scouting out lake langwise which is outside of the um town of carnation, most people know where you know, Lake Lango is, if you're familiar with the valley, uh, as a possible mill site, and that would have been the mill pond and stuff. So that would have been incredibly different if the mill would have been located in uh, so it shows you that, you know,
1: yeah, uh, and I one can individual confirm, made big I can confirm that because I've seen a copy of a letter uh, where they're debating where the best location for the mill site is going to be. And um, they referenced the Tolt site versus the Oh, Snoqualmie well, there you site. go. There
0: um, you and go. You they ended
1: up, my... yeah, and they ended wow. up going with the Snoqualmie site because of the, the Northern Pacific and Milwaukee Railroad access, uh, whereas the Tolt site only had the I think it was the Great Northern access, or maybe and Milwaukee, Northern but Milwaukee, the Great yeah. Northern, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but the Interesting. however. exact lay of the tracks where they felt that there was going to be better access yeah, Yeah. um at
0: the yeah well the the both of those tracks were quite a ways from the uh, mill site which would have been like language and so you're right the railroad tracks were very close proximity to where they built the mill there was right there i think the both tracks went
1: already right there because um up until I think 1912, there had been the Snoqualmie Mill Company operating out of that same site, uh, but their mill had burnt down. Um, and then the Grandin Coast and Warehouser jointly bought uh, the old Snoqualmie Mill site to form the Snoqualmie Falls Lumber Company.
0: Yeah, the Snoqualmie Mill was so important to the Snoqualmie area. At one time, it was like the major employer of Snoqualmie, was it not?
1: It was. It uh, employed over a thousand workers and uh, they had company housing for 250 families in addition to separate housing for Japanese uh, workers. And at one point, about a third of the employees uh, were Japanese or Japanese Americans. It was the major employer in the upper Snoqualmie Valley.
0: Do we know, what what primarily did the people of Japanese descent, what did they do up there?
1: Uh, The people of Japanese descent at the mill started with building the railways into the woods. Of course, the early operations, railroads were the primary way to get lumber to the mill. And then starting in the 1930s, they started transitioning into logging trucks. Um, And by that time, the Japanese workers had started to transition to things like the green chain. Uh, You have to remember the mill, of course, started during World War I. And so a lot of the European-American workers were getting drafted and being ready to be sent overseas. So there was a manpower shortage. So the mill actually hired a lot of both Japanese workers and women during their first years of operation.
0: And then after
1: the war was over, then they transitioned to having more European-American males in the mill. Uh, but the Japanese workers stayed a major group of employees until uh, World War II broke out when they were uh, interned and forcibly removed from the community. passing entered- history there,
0: passing history. I know the Japanese uh, really contributed a lot to the building of the railroads, not only the main line, but like you say, the small narrow gauge railroads that were up in the, uh, the used to harvest the logs out before the log trucks um, came by. So yeah. was, we'll make that a topic of one of our future programs: the, the logging railroads, because it's a fascinating history too. This is Tales from Tolt. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straight jacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Let's talk a little bit more about the museum now. One of the questions I like to ask museums in the past, when I've had one that's a museum, is the question: What would you consider to be your niche? Your what? What, what is what is the uh, one thing that maybe you do a little bit differently than your standard museum, run-of-the-mill museum? What uh, do you have a special exhibit or something that you think kind of sets you guys apart?
1: I think our photograph collection really sets us apart. We have an amazing collection of about 10,000 images in our general collection that are digitized and publicly accessible. And we post that on Facebook regularly. We also have the Harold Keller collection, which I mentioned earlier, that's 3,600 images. And then we have the Valley Reporter newspaper collection that's about another 36 images. And then recently we received the Valley Record newspaper uh, negative collection, which we're still processing but our best guess is that's about an additional uh, 80,000 images. And that really sets us apart as a small historical society for having that many images. It's typically a larger institution like the University of Washington Archives or somewhere like MOHAI that has that large of a photo collection. Between those four different collections, we really have a strong photograph collections spanning from the 1880s and 90s up until the early 2000s. Of course, the 80,000 Valley Record negatives that really span from 1980 to 2000 aren't accessible yet um, because we're still in the process of properly housing and scanning them and archiving them. um, And that's gonna be a mini year process, but the others are accessible and digitized. And I think that really sets us apart I think we're also very lucky in that Ada Hill started collecting fairly early on, so we do have a lot of items from the pioneers. Who donated them themselves, which I think that sets us apart as well, we of course have items that came in second or third generation, but we have items that were specifically donated by the people that originally had them from early on, which is also very neat.
0: So what I've heard so far in this program that you've said is that you're the only paid person there, and then you went on to talk about all this vastness of a collection that you have. That must mean that you rely uh, quite a bit on volunteers.
1: We do. It takes a lot of volunteer effort to take care of the collection and a lot of support from the community. Uh, We're very fortunate that we have a board of typically 12 people that really do a lot of day-to-day operations so gardner vintage our board president is staffing the museum on saturdays when we're open and our vice president dick kirby and his wife chris kirby staff the museum on sundays Um, other board members um, are doing oral history interviews and helping out in a lot of different ways we also have about a half dozen other volunteers that help with collections work quite frankly We're short staffed. We need more volunteers to help out. Uh, We would love to have uh, some more docents that could help um, on Saturdays and Sundays, uh, greeting visitors. You don't even really have to know a lot about Valley history. You just need to be friendly and willing to say, I don't know, but I'll find out the answer. Uh, Of course, we could also use volunteers that have collection skills. But that being said, we could also use volunteers that. Like to do things like governance and oversight because that's an area of the board that we want to start working more so that we have we're up to date on all of the current museum field policies. So, if you know anyone that's interested in volunteering, either as a regular volunteer or as a board member, uh, we're recruiting currently.
0: It delights me so much to hear that you are so actively engaging in the collection of oral histories because. I know that here uh, a good portion of the time I live my life in the Tri-Cities and then other times I'm over there in Westside. west side and over here we had a lot of people that unfortunately before that people started capturing this uh, people that have his rich amount of history about the Hanford area and the huge amount of change that went on at that area where there was these operating farming towns, very vibrant farming communities, of I mean, Anford, White Bluffs. And then one day the federal government in a huge war effort just came in and bought them all out and told them to get off their land. And, yeah. and, and the, the people that were involved in those farms, they had stories to tell. And unfortunately we lost a lot of them before their oral histories could be obtained. Fortunately, some people kind of caught wind of that and they got some grant funding and were able to do that. So I'm so delighted that some of those people that are might still be around, we we can get to them and do them the honors of getting their stories and the stories of our community yeah. before they're lost forever. Do you get some grant funding to help with some of those? Some of that? Mm-hmm.
1: Not necessarily with the oral histories, but we do receive grant funding for culture, which is King County's culture and heritage um, grant program, gives us an annual sustaining support grant, and as does the city of North Bend. And uh, typically in the past, we've also uh, had a sustaining support grant um, and LTAC funds from the city of Snoqualmie as well. And then we rely on uh, memberships and donations as well. And I've talked quite a bit about the museum's collection, but I haven't actually talked about the exhibits, so I should probably mention those as well. So we're open Saturdays through Tuesdays, 1 to 5, through the end of October, and then November through March, we're open just on Mondays and Tuesdays. And we have our main museum building has a rotating exhibit, which currently is on uh, high schools of... Stoqualmie Valley School District which of course you guys have a second one down in the Lower Valley Um, but next year it's going to be on uh, 1950 in the 1950s the census for 1950 being released and we also have a parlor and kitchen where we explore uh, what life in the 1910s was like before electricity really came into a strong focus in the area, and then we have a Snoqualmie Tribe Room that we put together about 15 years ago with members of the Snoqualmie Tribe. To me, that's one of our strongest exhibits. And then we also have a farm shed building where you look through the uh, windows and there's an exhibit on farming in the Snoqualmie Valley, uh, looking from Native American farming techniques up to the modern Hmong farmers. And we recently just uh, also added exterior exhibit panels so that even if you come on a day when we're closed there's additional uh, history and I believe currently the panels focus on the history of Snoqualmie pass and transportation over it and then uh, some logging information
0: interesting wow that's neat and uh, the agriculture exhibits uh, i've been there and visited that and uh, i tell you folks it's really worth going to see because it's really kind of hard to imagine because like you said farming and agriculture has really gone through some changes in the valley at one time it was primarily hops and other type of crops and then because of a whole bunch of different economic factors and international trade and everything else because Germany was involved with this all of a sudden that crop kind of died off and then the dairy farmers came and for a while dairy was king and then and now it's transitioning away from that and uh, becoming a lot of different truck gardens and people that are you know producing different types of uh, garden crops and things like that so a lot of different transformations and changes that the one thing you can always count on is change right
1: Exactly. And th- the one thing I also find fascinating about it is just the the fertility of the Snoqualmie Valley and how over thousands of years it's been able to sustain a fairly large population through growing foods um, where other regions don't have the glacial till and the the fine glacial runoff that causes the soil to be rich, nor the wonderful Snoqualmie River, uh, providing so much water to help things grow as well.
0: So tell me the truth: how many people come into the museum and say they were there because they were they have their picture taken under the famous tea of the uh, of the cafe right there in the corner?
1: We get quite a few people that are coming in uh, specifically to go see. Uh, Twin Peaks uh, scenes, and we also have a lot of visitors that are coming to see Snoqualmie Falls and may have been coming um, from the east side of the mountain, so they're wondering how to get there from us. Uh, we also get a lot of visitors who uh, may have originally been for the from the valley or had relatives that were that are coming to bring the next generations to come see where their family had been in the past. Uh, We find about 50% of our visitors come from King County, so either local residents or uh, day trip tourists. About 25% come from the greater uh, Washington State area, and then about 25% from the rest of the U.S. and foreign countries. Uh, We get people from all over the world. It's frequent uh, that we have visitors from Japan and China and Germany. Um, I had a visitor from Colombia the other day. It's, it's always neat to see all the people from different regions who are coming specifically to the Snoqualmie Valley as a destination to learn more about. I had one visitor come in who was from somewhere in Southeast Asia, and in our kitchen display we have a wood or coal burning stove to cook on and he was very excited because it was the same type of coal stove that he learned to cook on uh, when he was a child and it brought him back a lot of memories about his mother and grandmother cooking on it
0: mm-hmm. interesting
1: so
0: yeah and it's it's nice that you have those type of displays so, so that young folk can actually be shown and just what a previous generation went through just to heat a home and cook a meal it yeah. wasn't just as easy as flipping a the switch they just don't really understand i I actually had one family when I was in school that still had a wood cook stove just because they're, you know, I I think they just couldn't afford to modernize and have more. Maybe she's preferred it. And I used to witness how long it took Mike's mom, that was my friend's name, Mike, uh, to get the stove just the right temperature to uh, the stove and the oven, just the right temperature to make a meal was like a, you didn't just flip a switch back then. So yeah.
1: My dad, who's in his early 70s now, talks about when he was like elementary school age and going to visit his grandparents and they still had a chamber pot under the bed at night because they were using an outhouse and great grandma would cook on a coal stove, not because they didn't have an electric stove, but because she was old fashioned enough that she didn't like how it cooked as well. And so she wanted to keep the coal stove.
0: Yeah, you can, it's only been right on a on a wood stove. Yeah, you know? right. if people are going to do this tour, if they're coming into town from King County or from a different part of the state, they really got to do this right, and they got to visit both the Snoqualmie Valley Museum, and then they got to allow enough time to go to the Grail Museum in Snoqualmie. Right? I mean,
1: it's just almost oh, definitely. And, <laughs> and if you plan your trip right, you can get on the train and ride it to North Bend and have lunch and go visit Snoqualmie Valley Museum and get back on the train for the rest of your trip as well.
0: So see, free of charge, we've just planned your entire day of a really fun activity. That's the way to do it. That sounds like a really good way to do it. Take the train in, there's enough time for you to eat your lunch and and, and then take the train back, right?
1: Right. And um, if you're looking for heritage day trips, uh, there's a website called Savor Snoqualmie Valley, and I believe there's five different tours on there that will get you different historic day trips within the valley
0: oh that's really good information can you repeat that again what's the name of that
1: website uh, com, i believe
0: okay yeah so check that out that's got great ideas about how people can really go Is what a fun way to spend uh, a weekend that's a that's a good outing for somebody to come out and treat their family too so well I think that that is about uh we're about out of time I've I'm really encouraging folks to go out and take a look at this museum because these people have really done it right they've done wonderful exhibits that are very very uh, well done and entertain people give people a sense about what it was really like during uh, those times and really captured the history of the region in a very good way so I encourage everybody to take advantage of the museums that we have and visit them, but the Snoqualmie Valley ranks up there as one of the best in my opinion. So get out there and see it.
1: And uh, be sure to also visit our website, SnoqualmieValleyMuseum.org. We've just updated it over the last year. And so it has all the Mount Sai High School annuals available on there. Uh, Our online collection with 10,000 digital images is accessible through there, uh, along with blogs and additional content as well.
0: well. we're out of time so well, thank you so much and uh, folks tune in uh, next week on Mondays at 6pm uh, we'll, we'll talk about another interesting segment of, of Valley History so thank you everybody for listening bye for now